This is a Federal News Network podcast. Part of the Office of Personnel Management's work to improve diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility hinges on encouraging individuals from underserved communities to join the federal workforce. At a White House summit in Atlanta this week, OPM's new Deputy Chief of Staff, Kalila Harris, highlighted the Biden administration's efforts to connect local community members directly with federal leaders and resources. Harris is calling on members of diverse communities to look and apply for federal job opportunities. But she tells Federal News Network's Drew Friedman it's also crucial to travel to these underserved communities to help spread the word. Here's Harris to tell us more. We feel that it is extremely important to support the president's goal of having a workforce that reflects the American public and reflects the diversity across the the nation. So coming to places like Winnet, where it has a burgeoning Latino population, and meeting people where they are instead of expecting them to come to D.C. or explore our websites, that can sometimes seem overwhelming, is important to us. You can't say that you want to recruit that type of workforce and not go to where people are, not make sure they understand what opportunities are available to them. Everything from our $15 minimum wage across federal employees to opportunities for paid internship, which allows for us to expand access to opportunity when internships are unpaid, that really puts people in a position that they're not able to access those opportunities to expand their careers. We have our Presidential Management Fellow Program, the PMF program, which is also a paid opportunity for a fellowship for mid-career and rising mid-career talent to be able to come into the federal government and learn about careers in the federal workforce and bring their talents and skills. And then just beyond that, we have been expanding the opportunity for remote work in the face of the COVID pandemic. So now on USA Jobs, you can search careers by whether or not they are remote. So, you know, most federal jobs are outside of the District of Columbia, right? 80% of the federal workforce works outside of D.C., and that's not necessarily something people are clear about, that there are opportunities right in their own community to serve the federal workforce and serve the American public. So we have to go out to the American public in places where people may not understand what those opportunities are to make sure we are putting our best foot forward to recruit top talent that reflects the American public. You know, you're going to these different places and reaching out to try to engage with these different communities. Can you tell me a little bit more? How are you really engaging at an individual level to try to recruit more diverse candidates to the federal workforce? Well, one thing that we're doing is establishing MOUs with organizations that serve minority serving institutions. So organizations like HAKU, we are talking with folk in other entities that serve HBCUs, that serve tribal colleges, that serve Anapizis. So it's not just a matter of coming to big events like this. It is connecting with university presidents and their career services to make sure that they understand how to access federal jobs, which can seem daunting to understand that there are immediate opportunities through the bipartisan infrastructure law and now the Inflation Reduction Act to rapidly hire people who not only are credentialed through a degree, but also based on their skills. So skills-based hiring is something that we're also trying to communicate to people is 
a priority for the federal workforce. When we think about the future of work, using a blanket bachelor's degree required to determine who is able to do a job really has not been serving us well and has been causing a lot more inequity because if people can't access college but they obtain their skills through non-traditional routes, it has been very difficult for them to access jobs in private sector but also in government. So making sure we're partnering with not only minority service institutions, but technical colleges and the K-12 space so that they understand what careers are available to people, whether or not they have a college degree, is extremely important. So again, these events are amazing, you know, big events where you have a number of officials coming from the federal government talking about opportunities for jobs and for contrasting with the federal government, but also equipping institutions of higher education that serve a majority of young people of all ages from the global majority, making sure that they have the know-how to support their students in accessing federal jobs is extremely important to us. And that requires long-term relationships, not only one-off events like this, but ongoing professional development and training of the trainers so that they know how to access jobs in the federal government and they're able to carry that message with specifics with the students who are sitting at their desk or sitting across from them in a career fair. I want to ask you a little bit more about that because, you know, recruitment is one half of the equation, but then once you have federal employees or new people in the federal workforce, can you tell me a little bit more specifically, what are some ways that you look to retain those employees and keep them in federal service for the long run? How do you, how do you go about managing that? There are a range of things that OPM specifically is charged with whether it be through our Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion and Accessibility, or just across the policies that we're developing, retention is a huge piece of this. The President's management agenda charges OPM with leading an effort on strengthening and retaining the federal workforce. So we have the first of his goals, and we're responsible for executing. One thing that we do is ensure that we're looking at the data to determine where there may be gaps in which people are able to access more senior leadership roles. So we've seen around the GS 11, 12 level, you'll find that the number of people who are from the global majority vastly decreases as you move up in the GS level. So what steps can we take like blind applications for more senior roles, expanding opportunities for details across federal agencies so people can broaden their experiences and obtain those more senior roles is one thing we're doing. Our agency also released the memorandum across all federal agencies to ensure that they hire a chief diversity officer for the first time. And these people are required to really use best practices, not only in hiring, but in retention, but in business decisions, but in how they do procurement and how they do contracting to ensure that there are people who can understand what it takes to make sure people feel included and that they belong in the federal workforce. Other than the chief diversity officers, we are also expanding access to paid internships. And that is something that we're trying to do to make sure that we pull people into the federal government who might not have been there before. But then beyond that, we have our employee resource groups that we are supporting heavily. We had an employee resource group summit at the beginning of this year, again, because President Biden believes this is an important way to make sure people understand that he wants them in the federal government, that they belong here, that their service is critical to mission. 
And so employee resource groups provides people with an opportunity to find affinity with others who share similar backgrounds and, frankly, others who don't have their background. Many of our employee resource groups have membership of people not affiliated with that particular community because the federal workforce is an amazing group of people, and they want to learn about their colleagues. So providing monetary support, thinking through ways that people can use paid time to support the work that they do with employee resource groups is another way that we are working to make sure that people are included. And then beyond that, just making sure, again, we're looking at data to identify if there are gaps in places, where there are gaps in places that we need to pay closer attention to, whether it is an opportunity for promotion, for pay increase, for opportunities to interact with the most senior leadership in your agency. Those are all ways we believe um, that people feel like they're talents are being acknowledged. In each federal agency, there are pools of resources to provide awards, monetary awards to team members for work that they've done. And all of those things come together to support the federal workforce in feeling like they're in the right place. One other thing that I would include is the fact that within some of these MOUs, we're providing upskilling for existing federal employees so they don't feel stuck in their roles. Right. Sometimes people will join an organization and not feel like there's a pathway for them to get promoted. But the federal government is partnering with a number of institutions for very low-cost tuition so that they can improve their skill set so that they can obtain more senior roles if that's their desire. You spoke briefly about just the role of remote opportunities or teleworking opportunities that, you know, you can maybe filter down and find them on USA Jobs. And I wanted to ask a little bit about that because – You know, that's something that's talked about a lot is we see federal employees who are favoring agencies that have more flexible telework policies. How does that really tie into this DEIA initiative and what's the importance of remote work opportunities to kind of grow that? Telework opportunities really are contingent on a particular agency and their management to decide how they implement that in connection with their mission, right? All jobs are not able to have teleworking. So that's a very different topic than remote work. There are jobs that you're able to do completely remote where you don't have to go into an office. Our federal executive boards around the country provide connectivity to the agency headquarters in D.C. And so even at OPM, we have people who work across the 50 states who support the work of OPM. Remote work is critical in this post-COVID coming into our consciousness. Remote work is something that is important to many people, allowing them to stay in their communities, in our rural communities, in our communities that have fewer resources. It does not make sense to pull people who are anchors of those communities out to go work in other places. And people, frankly, want to stay in their communities with people who raise them, with their relatives, and with the values and culture that they're familiar with. So remote work for the first time is something that you can search for on USA Jobs, 100% remote. On the telework front, again, that that really is contingent on management of agency by agency, subunit by subunit, on whether or not those roles are ones that can be flexible enough for people to come in and out on a hybrid basis. I think most federal agencies prior to the pandemic had telework policies where people could access telework, where they could, you know, if they needed to be home for a couple of days or needed to travel for a couple of days, but they had essential work that they needed to do, that they could do that remotely. And with the advances of technology, we are looking at 
telework and remote work policies and different ways for the future of work, which is something that OPM is really out in front of in terms of thought leadership around what the future of work looks like. And listen, when it comes to equity and DEIA, to your original question, we also need to be conscious of the ways in which building your network allows for opportunity. So we are looking at expanding that conversation around the future of work to talk about what the context is and the quality of your work environment. And sometimes that does require you to go into a brick and mortar place so you can meet people, have those cooler conversations and those impromptu discussions where you really need to see someone's body language in a way that you cannot online. And I think unfortunately people talk about telework in, in, in very narrow ways and don't think about the full expanse of how that can impact people from the global majority, young people who might be first generation college and not have the network that other people have and just saying to them, oh yeah, it's no big deal. You should work at a company that you feel most flexible at and that may, may allow you to do 100% remote or, or maximal telework. Well, are they also talking with them about how they build their networks in that environment, how they are contributed in a way that is effective and that is visible to their leadership, how they are accessing mentorship and sponsorship from people who can really help them advance their careers. And those conversations need to happen simultaneously as opposed to that narrow, well, if you don't have remote or if you're not flexible on telework, that's not the company for me. And unfortunately, I think we hear sometimes people talking about young people in ways that are very narrow and lack nuance because all young people are not the same. When you talk about people from the global majority, when you talk about people who may be the children of immigrants or, or new Americans themselves, when you talk about young people who are from communities that have been underrepresented and disenfranchised, it's not enough to just say, you know, those young people want to have 100% remote or maximal telework. As people who have been in industry and understand the shifts, OPM is trying to provide thought leadership for agencies and how they create structures that both allows for maximal telework and also accounts for that DEI perspective of how do we make sure that this is not unintentionally causing gaps in equity when it comes to accessing opportunity in those organizations. When we know human nature is to pull people up who you see all the time, who you can touch, who you can see their body language. So those are some of the things we're thinking about as we talk about the future of work. You are fairly new to your role at OPM. I wanted to ask, what are some of the focuses or main areas of priority that you have in the short term coming up? And just anything else that we really missed in this conversation that you wanted to highlight from, from your work so far? I'm new to OPM, but this is my second stint at OPM. I also was here during the Obama administration. And a priority for Director Ahuja is making sure that this agency knows its value and that the rest of the federal government is clear about the value of this agency, that we are really trying to power a strong federal workforce. And so that means we are building out opportunities to bring in early career talent. That's a massive, massive, massive priority for us. The federal workforce is aging. And if people join the federal workforce right out of college and they're in their 40s, many are able to retire in their 40s. So only 20% of the federal workforce is under the age of 30. Um, and that, that is a potential crisis factor if we have people beginning to retire with pensions and droves and not enough young people who want to join the federal workforce. So that's a critical priority. 
also ensuring that we are upskilling, as I said before, but really looking at talent more broadly and not just based on degrees. And then the last thing I would say is a priority is making sure we are servicing our retirees, annuitants, and their families, and making sure that their service that they provided for the public is honored by them having access to their retirement benefits in a timely manner so that they can move on with whatever they want to do post-federal service and take care of their families. So those are three things that we are really prioritizing in addition to, of course, making sure we staff up for the bipartisan infrastructure law as well as the Inflation Reduction Act. The, the massive amounts of hiring we need to do to get those things rolling are also of critical importance. That's OPM Deputy Chief of Staff Kalila Harris speaking with Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. 
There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, getting confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in this in this sense. Looking back, what what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about. Is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. 
other times I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down. Sometimes you have to tone it up. And that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. 
Reconnect with a carpool or van pool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.